Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Another problem for Elon Musk, what whistleblowers are saying about construction at his so-called Gigafactory in Texas. The Communication Workers of America taking on Wells Fargo for what they're doing to fight the union. And today on the show, we're going to check in with the operating engineers in the state of Michigan and the latest from the North Coast Labor Federation. Welcome to the Thursday, November 17th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. John Hartwell is going to be our first guest on the show today. He is the uh, career and outreach representative for the International Union of Operating Engineers. This would be local 324 in Michigan. And I'll tell you, they got a chunk of members, 14,000. 500 members they operate the heavy machinery that propels construction on the roads bridges buildings energy plants pipelines airports just about every large-scale project in the state their members operate the cranes bulldozers trucks excavators they also are on the forefront of technology operating next generation equipment like robotic and remote-controlled machines and drones. Boy, that's the future, no doubt about that. They also represent the highly skilled stationary engineers, and these are the folks that operate and intend complex boiler and HVA systems, and there's plenty of those to cover. They also have, uh, this would be 324, four training locations throughout the state of Michigan. One of them is on a 600-acre site, in Howell, and that's the place where President Biden chose to announce his Infrastructure Act, which is coming on the first anniversary here. In fact, this week when it was signed into Congress, it was, well, actually passed in Congress. President Biden signed it into law in December of last year. A little background on John. He is, again, the career and outreach representative with the local. And in that position, he networks with industry partners, school districts, various groups to expand the opportunities of apprenticeship. And this is National Apprenticeship Week, so we'll talk about that as well. In fact, the uh, the focus this week is on women in construction. We're getting more women in construction, no doubt about that, but there's a long way to go, and I'm sure John will touch on that. We'll uh, also talk about um, the important part of modern recruitment which is appealing to communities that were previously underserved. Again, I keep saying this almost every day on the show. It's a pathway to the middle class. There's a lot of areas in America that are underserved, poverty stricken. Got to get into those neighborhoods and say, you know what? There's a lot of work out there. Join an apprenticeship program. You could be making six figures before you know it. That's what's going on. And uh, John will speak to that. Pat Gallagher, on behalf of the North Coast Labor Federation and the United Steelworkers, 
He will be our second guest, longtime supporter of America's workforce. And we got some good news out of U.S. Steel. Apparently, they have a tentative contract agreement. We'll touch on that. And this follows a recent agreement with the Cleveland Cliffs. The steel industry has been doing pretty good, especially now with all the building going on. I'm sure they're still dealing with, uh, you know, dumping from China. We can touch on that as well. And obviously the election, North Coast Labor Federation, very politically involved, especially in uh, northeastern Ohio. And uh, there are a few bright spots and uh, you win some, you lose some. Right. But nationally, nationally, I mean, the way it looks right now, the Republicans will control the House. The Democrats will control the Senate. I got a message here from Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO. She said, make no mistake, we kept our pro-labor majority in the U.S. Senate. Why? Because of tireless campaigning from union members across the country. The union members in Nevada and Arizona deserve special recognition for their incredible election victory. So thank you. Some people said our pro-labor majority was a lost cause. Well, (laughs) we showed them what we can do when we keep fighting. Now we have the opportunity to expand that majority. The runoff in Georgia, well, that's going to be close. We need to keep our foot on the gas pedal. This election will show beyond the shadow of a doubt that workers empowered by solidarity can make lasting progress for our country. Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO. That uh, special election in Georgia will be on December 6th. Unions in the news, making news. This labor update brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. The Guardian, great newspaper. They reported this week that whistleblowers intend to file a complaint with the U.S. Department of Labor on the basis of exploitive pay practices and unsafe working conditions experienced by the thousands of construction workers building Tesla's massive gigafactory that's being built in Austin, Texas. And apparently the labor practices allegedly go against federal employment statutes like the Fair Labor Standards Act and OSHA. More specifically, the reports include, among other things, allegations of wage theft, on-site safety hazards, numerous accidents and injuries, and get this, fraudulent OSHA certificates. Tesla now has selected Austin as the site of its new facility after getting the city to give tens of millions of dollars in tax breaks upon it, and broke ground on the compound two years ago in 2020, which is slated to cost over $1 billion and extending across 10 million square feet of factory floor to be one of the largest vehicle manufacturing facilities in the country. Wow. The uh, reports of exploitive employment practices and unsafe working conditions are not the first allegations to be raised with respect to electric vehicle manufacturer Tesla's plant in California. For example, there were fines levied in that plant between 2014 and 2018. $250,000 in OSHA fines. $250,000 
more than any other automobile manufacturing firm during that time. And the company's other gigafactory in Nevada has witnessed a steady stream of workplace safety violations and injuries, including amputations. Elon Musk, probably one of the richest guys in the world, staunchly anti-union. By the way, that uh, that plant I just mentioned in uh, California was in Fremont. That was a former General Motors plant, and uh, they pretty much mothballed it, and then Tesla took it over and went non-union. We did a story on that some years ago, and those auto workers were making about half what they would normally make in the uh, UAW. And Tesla has, like I said, a record of unfair labor practices, no matter where they go. And as you know, Elon Musk purchased Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and he put an ultimatum up, I guess, yesterday. And he said, if you are not a hard worker, if you don't give it all, in other words, work long hours for the same pay that you're making, you might as well just leave the company. He gave him an ultimatum today. By 5 o'clock today, get out of here if you're not going to be a team player. Nice guy, huh? The Communication Workers of America filed two charges with the NLRB against Wells Fargo, both of which accused the financial giant of illegally attempting to deter its employees from unionizing, which is in violation of Section 8A1 of the National Labor Relations Act. The charges allege that Wells Fargo management threatened and disciplined workers who were contributing to the ongoing organizing drive, which was announced last fall, partially as a response to the major ethical breaches that have plagued the company in the last couple of years, though the workers also desire higher pay, better working conditions, and more reasonable hours. Well, the company, Wells Fargo, has publicly opposed the union effort voicing its belief that its employees, quote, are best served by working directly with the company and its leadership, not a third-party group like a union. No, 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 no. We don't want that. Well, in any event, the if the organizing drive is successful, and if the company continues engaging in unfair labor practices, it would represent a momentous entry into the financial sector, one of the least organized industries in the country. So this is definitely one to watch, no doubt about that. And uh, one more here before we break. In the latest Starbucks development, boy, this is like a soap opera. The company reportedly intends to shutter yet another recently unionized store. This is uh, one in Portland, Maine. Employees at the Portland store voted to unionize a couple of weeks ago. And Starbucks Workers United announced on Twitter this week that management plans to close the location next month. Well, the president of the main AFL-CIO lambasted the pending closure as, quote, an illegal union-busting tactic and blatant violation of the right of workers to unionize free from retaliation. And uh, they also noted the U.S. Supreme Court has held in Textile Workers Union versus Darlington, 
you might want to look that case up, Textile Workers Union versus Darlington, that shuttering a portion of an enterprise, yes, may constitute a violation of the National Labor Relations Act if the purpose of the closure was to discourage labor organizing in the employer's remaining facilities. This company doesn't care about the law, obviously. All right, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with the operating engineers in the state of Michigan. That would be Local 324. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. The United Steelworkers of America represent over 70,000 workers in the state of Ohio. Steelworker members enjoy the benefits of some of the best contracts of any workers in the world. Many of your friends, neighbors, and relatives are members of one of the most effective Democratic unions in our country. With the pressures unorganized workers are under in today's economy, you need to join them. So call the Steelworkers Organizing Office at 216-292-5683 or toll-free at 1-800-443-3752. Buildings, bridges, skyscrapers, and more. Structures that are the face of our cities and towns were built by members of the Iron Workers Union. That's why it's important that our workforce of over 130,000 iron workers continues to be the safest and best trained in the field. With 154 training centers, we invest over $90 million annually in safety and training. We're growing the next generation of union iron workers. There are so many reasons to put your trust in our iron workers and their employers. Learn more about us at ironworkers.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Before we get to our first guest, just want to give a plug to one of our sponsors here. That would be the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And today, as Scott Paul, their executive director, promised us a couple of weeks ago, they released their annual Made in America Holiday Gift Guide. They've got gifts made in America. Every state, every state. If you go to AmericanManufacturing.org, you can uh, download the uh, Made in America gift guide featuring gift ideas from 50 states, Washington, D.C., as well as Puerto Rico. They did a great job on this. They also did some research on what people like to buy and also the importance of being made in America 76% of consumers, 76%, so that's what, over three out of four, say they prefer to buy American-made products, and 81% say they would purchase more of them if they were more widely available through large retailers. Listen up, large retailers. We want it made in America. Support American workers, best in the world. All right, let's go to uh, Howell, Michigan right now. 
and join John Hartwell. John is the career and outreach representative for the operating engineers. That would be local 324. This is a giant local. They cover the entire state of Michigan, over 14,500 members. John Hartwell, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, my brother? Very good, very good. Thank you for having me. Well, I tell you, you got uh, quite a local there and a heck of a training center. I mentioned that at the top of the show, but I want to talk a little bit about John Hartwell and your background, how you got involved in the operating engineers. Tell me that story, John. So uh, I actually, out of high school, I, I went through a CTE program. They weren't called CTE back then, VOTAC, and uh, I thought I wanted to be a carpenter. So I joined the Carpenters Union right out of high school, got looking around on the job sites, and uh, the operating engineers looked like a good choice for me, uh, operating the heavy equipment. So I applied for the apprenticeship program and went through the application process, got started on it, and it was the best thing I ever did. I can't imagine doing something different. That's uh, 30 years ago, and, um, and to watch the craft grow from there, has been amazing so well, yeah. well let's talk about that as far as how it how it grew i mean that's that's quite a time period there the 30-year period what 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 kind of change over that time john so some we've seen a lot of change probably in the last 15 years i would say uh our equipment has changed became more technical as we uh went through the years but uh the respect for um for the trades, for working with your hands has really grown. I think that they, they call it a, uh, a gap. I call it a respect gap to where all the parents wanted, you know, their student to do better than they did. So everybody needed to go to college. I think we're back on a, on a track where they realize that in America, we need, we need workers of all, all forms and apprenticeship is a very viable option, very lucrative option. So I think that we're getting the respect we need from from parents and school districts, and it's really helping grow the trades. That's good. Yeah, that's good. You got to earn that respect, and obviously, it's uh, it's happening. I love your mission statement here: we build, we operate, and we maintain. And uh, the maintenance part—that's when you have the uh, the skilled station in stationary engineers, and these are the ones that operate the uh, the boiler systems, the HVA systems. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you mentioned how the uh, the whole craft has changed. And I noticed you're doing a lot with uh, robotics, drones. Can you give us some details on that? That sounds pretty fascinating. And probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, that might be, you know, you know the younger generation likes that kind of stuff. <laughs> you follow me? That's probably attractive to, to younger workers, is it not? It is. It's very attractive to the younger workers, and then to be able to see, to be able to see what we can do with the drones from uh, a flyover on a highway to uh, gauge the rideability of the highway to volumes of stockpiles for uh, for uh, 
stone on a job site or in a quarry situation. We can also use them for uh, inspection of a long crane boom. Say a crane's up in the city, we can't boom it down to inspect it, but we can fly that drone up and, and look at all of our pins, our connections for safety reasons. But even on the buildings, on the stationary side, we can we can fly around the outside of the building, inspect the building, make sure everything's in order. Um, and we're getting more and more uses for the drones every day. And you're right, it, it really attracts the young people in that technology. The other piece that we do is autonomous equipment, remote control equipment uh, in some dangerous areas that we don't have to put personnel into. They can run it remote control uh, on site um, and and uh, achieve the same results that they would as if they were sitting in a seat. So technology's crazy, crazy good. Yeah, I like that. Uh, now, that being said, uh, I would imagine over the years, the apprenticeship program has changed to to capture that, to capture that technology. Can you speak to that and, and how that has evolved over the years? We we really have to offer more classes. So at our facility out here in, in Howell, we probably have 120 to 150 apprentices out here every week taking various classes, um, drone classes for one. We, uh, we bring our apprentices in and, and journeymen too and bring them up to a FAA level so that they get a license uh, to fly the drones and make sure that they know all the proper uh, rules and regulations for being around the airports and where not to be. But the other piece is that we do uh, GPS, global positioning satellites on the equipment so that uh, so that we can do gradeless or stakeless technology. They can get a, a print of the job site inside the piece of equipment and know what grades they're cutting and what grades they're filling. It's It's amazing, and it just keeps moving forward. John, let me ask you this, and you probably heard the old line, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, I'm just wondering how the older members are, are adapting to this technology, and do they have to go back to, uh, like, apprenticeship school a little bit to, to learn a little bit about the new technologies here? Is that is that what's happening or no? They do. They do. They're actually on board with it um, because of our, our contractors are on board with it. Our contractors are buying the newest equipment out there with the technology on it. They want to make sure that their personnel know how to operate it. So our journeymen come out here uh, to, to our Howell facility, and they'll do the, the upgrade right alongside the apprentices. Um, uh, we do uh, a, a big amount of journeyman upgrade hours especially for the gps and and the drones john you've been talking about this uh, training facility in howell michigan and i know you got four of them and this one in howell is huge 600 acre construction career center and that's the place where president biden chose to announce the infrastructure and jobs act were you there uh, for that event when that uh, when that announcement came john I was here for that event, um, and I did get the opportunity to uh, give President Biden a tour of our simulator facility. So we have eight heavy equipment simulators here at the Howell facility. They're, uh, they're equipment that you would put an apprentice on before they actually go out and get on the real piece of equipment. They operate the same with motion platforms, which is another incredible piece of our technology. 
Um, and uh, President Biden was very interested in what we're doing here, in the technology piece, um, and uh, seemed really interested in a career choice where you could retire with dignity. In fact, I mentioned dignity to him, and he said that was one of his father's favorite phrases. Um, so it was nice to have him out and um, see that he was in tune with what the industry's doing. Now, that was signed into law in December of last year. Have you seen any results? Has, has any of that money been coming in in the state of Michigan, John? Um, I believe the money has been coming in in the state of Michigan. We've had a lot of work uh, in in the road area, uh, in the building area, uh, and it doesn't look like it's going to slow down anytime soon. So it's a great time for young people to come into the trade. Um, it's a really promising future. John Hartwell, career and outreach representative for the operating engineers. That would be local 324. They cover the entire state of Michigan, 14,500 members. We'll continue the conversation, and we'll talk about National Apprenticeship Week, Women in Construction is the theme today. And later in the show, we're going to check in with Pat Gallagher on behalf of the North Coast Labor Federation and the United Steelworkers. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's liuna.org. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's cwad4.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio. United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our Raising Wages agenda, go to AFLCIO.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And don't forget, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, just do this. Sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings. And 
If you like a show, share that show because we count all the downloads and we're getting more and more each and every day. So thank you for that. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go back to Howell, Michigan and rejoin Mr. John Hartwell. John is a career and outreach representative on behalf of the operating engineers there. That would be Local 324, which covers the entire state of Michigan. Website oe324.org. John, uh, we're talking about uh, apprentices and apprenticeship week, and we're the uh, fourth day into apprenticeship week. Today, nationally, the focus is on uh, women in construction. I would like to uh, pick up on that because I understand the operating engineers are doing a pretty good job on that. What, what are the numbers on that, John? We uh, we do a lot of active recruiting for that, and we're proud of our numbers. Um, we're running uh, between 12 and 14% female in our apprenticeship at this time. We're shooting for that 20% mark, and we've really been heading that way over the last few years, um, working with uh, some national organizations like the National Association of Women in Construction, NAWIC. We have some local groups, uh, WIST, which is Women in the Skilled Trades, which operate pre-apprenticeship programs or apprenticeship readiness programs, and they have been uh, just a wealth of knowledge and information on how to capture the female audience and uh, make sure the ladies are heading our way to the trade. We know that if we're not actively recruiting women, we're missing uh, 51% of the workforce. So you're at 14%. You're shooting for 20. Any idea in mind? Where would you like to, you know, what year would you like? Would would that be next year, the year after to get that uh, 20%? (laughs) I would like to get up to that 20% in the next four years if possible. And, and I do think that it's possible. Sure. Good, good, good. Well, I understand, too, the, the other part of this conversation is getting into those underserved communities. And, and I know uh, the National Building Trades, NAB2, the AFL-CIO, with their uh, Permission to Dream campaign, that's partnership with Chris Gardner. There, there's a big effort going on in America to target that area. And it's, again, the pathway to the middle class. Uh, What's going on in the state of Michigan in that regard, John? So we have a number, uh, again, of pre-apprenticeship programs that we work with um, to make sure that we get into those areas. One of them is Access for All, uh, one of the ones that I've been working with out of, for high school students to come directly into apprenticeship is Detroit Workforce of the Future. And you mentioned NAB, too. Uh, we utilize the MC3 curriculum with both of those groups, and they've been really successful. Um, our Access for All program that we're involved with started out in Detroit, and now we've moved it over to uh, Grand Rapids, Jackson, Saginaw, so we're expanding that piece out in these uh, underutilized areas of the state of Michigan. So how's that conversation going? Because uh, there's a lot of work out there right now. I'm just wondering, when you have that conversation, do the folks understand the opportunities that they can be making well over six figures? They can have a career. They can have a skill that nobody can take away from you for the rest of your life. Uh, Is any of that dialogue being addressed? 
That is that is the exact conversation that we have, right? Because people don't know what they don't know. And to be able to bring that information out when you first state those opportunities, it seems like it's unrealistic, right? But mm-hmm. the opportunities, too, are life-changing. So that's part of the career exploration piece that goes along with these pre-apprenticeships and readiness programs. And it's not just the operating engineers, it's the other building trades that are taking a part part along with us, such as the laborers, the carpenters, the iron workers, and letting the uh, underutilized population actually do that career exploration so that they get an idea on which trade they would actually fit into, what they would enjoy most, and that gives us the opportunity to talk about all those great benefits that you had previously mentioned. I would imagine, too, there's um, some probably think, well, yeah, there's a lot of work now, but what's it going to be like five years from now, 10 years from now? Because, I mean, there are downtimes in the economy. Let, let's be honest about that. Um, with that being said, <laughs> what, what does it look like? Say, well, obviously, you know the state of Michigan pretty well. What, what's the uh, what's the outlook? And What's the manpower needs? I should say women power too. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, yeah. What's, uh, what's it exactly. look like right now? It, 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 we're in a very unique time right now. I, in my 30 years, I have not seen anything like it. Um, the projection for work over the next 10 years is, is, is outstanding. But the growth opportunity within the industry because of the great tsunami, right? A lot of us are going to retire and leave the industry and the growth potential for apprentices coming into the industry right now is unlimited. Somebody has to fill those foreman, superintendent positions, supervisory out there. So to come in today as an apprentice, be able to move up the ladder, the sky, and that's truly the conversation with the young coming into the program. Um, you mentioned time. you mentioned the age that the great tsunami. What is the average age? Do you have any numbers on that for the operating engineers? I'm not sure on the operating is what the age is at, at this time. Um, a few years like forty seven years old. So um, we can retire out of the operating engineers with thirty five years of service um, at fifty five years old. Um, so. Um, and not just the operating engineers, but our whole construction industry itself um, mm. is on that uh, on that older side and looking at some retirements here within the next six or seven years. John, put your uh, sales cap on here for a few minutes, if you don't mind. I-, I think there's a lot of people. We do have a national audience, and there's many operating engineers, locals around the country. There's probably a lot of folks that, you know, I, I gave a brief description at the top of the show of what, what you guys do. Um, I'd like to hear from your mouth on, on all the different things because it's it's pretty diverse. Can you address that for our, for our listening audience? Yeah, it, it's really diverse. We actually have three different apprenticeship uh, programs with, within the operating engineers. We have the heavy equipment operator program, which is all the heavy equipment that you see on the road jobs, the highways, the building projects, um, anything from a crane to a bulldozer, excavators. We have apprenticeship for that three-year apprenticeship program. We also have a four-year apprenticeship program for heavy equipment technicians, which would be our diesel technicians. Somebody has to repair all this equipment 
And that's a four-year program, very in-demand position right there, um, and very specialized. Uh, so we have those two programs. And then you kind of touched on the uh, stationary operating engineers a little bit. We have a an apprenticeship program for stationary operating engineers. It's a four-year program, and it involves boiler technician, building maintenance, um, air quality, HVAC, um, really keeping America running, like we said, or keeping Michigan running. So mm-hmm. uh, very, very diverse. Thank you for asking. How many, how many in the program right now, in your apprenticeship program? We are, we are at over uh, 450 apprentices in our apprenticeship. Um, that's the highest number that we've been at, and we've been growing by leaps and bounds each, each year. So we truly expect that number to be over 500, 550 by uh, next year this time. Yeah, and I take it those four training locations throughout the state, they're, they're humming right now. I, I would imagine that one we talked about earlier, the, uh, the one in Howell, Michigan, 600 acres. <laughs> That's pretty large. <laughs> pretty large. Is that the biggest of the group there? That is the largest. That's uh, that's the largest of our facilities. And with the growth in the industry, um, two years ago, we finished an expansion on our building, which brought us uh, 10 new classrooms. We've outgrown that facility now, and we are in the um, planning phases for more classrooms, an indoor arena, a new uh, a new tech area for our mechanics. So uh, growth is good, and uh, the industry's great right now, for sure. Oh, no doubt about that. John, I got one more question here before we uh, part ways here. John Hartwell joining us on behalf of the Operating Engineers Local 324, which covers the entire state of Michigan. John serves as career and outreach representative. Any uh, comment on... Uh, the lawmakers there, do they understand what you guys are doing and the fact that you're investing in the future, you're investing in education and you're supporting um, the jobs of the future here? And because, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. And then what do you do when you leave college? You often don't have the job that you thought you were going to have and you have a lot of student debt. Uh, I'm just wondering if uh, what, what, the, what the lawmakers are saying about the apprenticeship program there and how it's funded. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So thanks to our leadership team and uh, Doug Stockwell, our business manager, we have a great relationship with the uh, with our legislators in the state of Michigan, our politicians. We make sure that we uh, invite them out to our training centers, give them a tour, uh, answer any questions they have. And that's the first question they always ask is, how do you guys fund all this? And we're like, we're self-funded through collective bargaining. And it is a shock, right, at, at first. And then it's drilling down and knowing what this trade actually has to offer and what our members do and our contractors to make sure that our workforce is ready for the industry. Um, the politicians have been very receptive to that and, and really respect our trade and and the rest of the trades for the model that we put forward for apprenticeship. Well, you got a very strong labor federation there, and obviously uh, some good things happened at the polls last week. So uh, it's all moving in the right direction in the state of Michigan. And, you know, being an Ohio guy, it's hard for me to say that, okay? We got the Ohio-Michigan game coming up here <laughs> next next Saturday. So I have, to, I have to grip my teeth saying that, okay? I, I hope you understand yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, go blue. 
<laughs> oh no, there it comes. OE three two four dot org is your website. Okay, John, thank you for joining us, brother, and uh, go Bucks. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. John Hartwell joining us on our live line. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Pat Gallagher on behalf of the North Coast Labor Federation and the Steelworkers coming up next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The the United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. Now... Back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And, of course, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, AWF Union Podcast. Make sure you get the word union in there. Let's go to line number two. Welcome a longtime friend and supporter of America's Workforce. That would be Mr. Pat Gallagher with the United Steelworkers and the North Coast Labor Federation. Busy guy. He's in Pittsburgh today, and we got some good news to start off the show. Apparently, we have a tentative contract agreement with u.s steel mr gallagher welcome back to the show and uh got any details on this what's the story buddy yes flash yeah we got reached a tentative agreement with u.s steel uh possibly about twelve thousand members across the country are covered by this agreement it uh, matches the uh pattern that we set with the cleveland cliffs agreement which was ratified uh last month in october 12th and uh, hopefully we're going to set this up for ratification on December 20th. And it's got to provide significant wage increases, an increase in pension, uh, maintain uh, health care with no premiums for our members. And it's uh, it follows a pattern that was set at the Cleveland Cliffs contract, and we're pretty happy that we reached disagreement. That's good. Is did, did I hear a four-year contract? Is that right? It's a four-year contract, yes. Good, good, good. So, How – how uh, did U.S. Steel? I remember in you, talking to you 
in years past, and they, they they got some new guys over there in management, and they were playing hardball. But you know, the industry has changed a little bit. The demand for steel has gone up. Uh, how did they? How did those negotiations go, Pat? Well, they're very difficult. They uh, first were reluctant to meet the pattern that was set at Cleveland Cliffs. Uh, they made all kinds of excuses. They couldn't afford it, even though they made record profits. And it's you know it was pretty difficult negotiation. But finally, we got them to come around and meet the same wage uh, wage increases that we achieved for our members at Cleveland Cliffs and some of the other benefits that we were able to maintain and improve. So, and U.S. Now, Steel for years was a was a company that you know only promoted from within. And then, you know, about a decade ago, they started bringing in some outside people to be management. And uh, it's not really helped the relationship between the steel workers and U.S. Steel. But some, we're getting through it and we're trying to work for a better relationship with them also. Yeah, that's the uh, company my dad worked for for over 40 years. The right. old Cuyahoga Works. Right. And, yep. Yeah. Local yeah. 1298. No, yeah. 1298. That's, yep. I, I still have his badge, you know. <laughs> It's amazing. Yep. But, uh, yeah, they, they have changed over the years, sadly, uh, not for the good. But uh, I'm just wondering here, because you had, you know, with the pattern bargaining, the fact that Cleveland Cliffs signed off on it and, uh, the you know, the workers were pretty happy with that. Does that kind of, like, push things along for U.S. Steel, saying, well, well we, we you know, they did it. I guess we should probably sign off on this, but we'll still give them a hard time. No. Well, that's, I mean, that's what we, we set the pattern. We bargain simultaneously. They have common expiration dates, and it's kind of like a, it's a horse race. Whoever gets to the finish line first, they, they set the pattern. So when we yeah. feel that we have a, a agreement that's uh, beneficial to our members and that we think they can ratify and that they'll uh, like the benefits for, we, we, you know, we go for that one and try to get that one ratified and then try to pass that pattern down to the other employers. Yeah. Well, as you know, we've been talking for years about the dumping of Chinese steel, and I know the, the companies here were obviously concerned about that. Um, things with China seem to have changed a little bit. Uh, I'd like to hear from uh, from you on how that picture is today with, with the dumping going on and the, and the trade violations. Well, actually, just this week, there were hearings in Washington for the International Trade Commission about steel and about dumping and uh, actually, our vice president, David McCall, was testified there in front of the ITC. Uh, we still have some problems with dumping, and, you know, they have curtailed a little bit, but there's still a lot of issues coming in where they're, they are bringing in steel and under, underneath what they cost to make it, and they're dumping it, and they're getting uh, kickbacks from their governments and free energy, free land, and something we have to deal with in the steel industry, and it's there is a global overcapacity problem. That we that needs to be addressed, and it's mainly China's the big producer of the, of the overcapacity. Yeah. In the last since, in the last twenty so twenty or so years, China's more than you know quadrupled its its capability for producing steel, and it's been dumping it across the world since then. And actually, what they're doing is they're exporting their unemployment over to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. What about aluminum? Because I know a lot of aluminum smelters have closed in this country, and then China's dumping a lot of aluminum, and aluminum prices have gone up. Right. What's, what's yeah, new there? Yeah, aluminum's are a bigger problem for us than, than steel, actually, because uh, we're down to like three active smelters in the United States, and that's a you know commodity that's well used, and we need to try to you know perk up our aluminum capacity here. And 
you know, that's one of the issues we've talked about the International Trade Commission also. All right, let's switch gears here. And uh, I know you're you're licking your wounds last week, and, and you really did a great job on behalf of the North Coast Labor Federation in all of labor, especially in the state of Ohio, because they they poured their heart and soul out to back Tim Ryan to be the next senator to replace uh, Rob Portman. Instead, it went to J.D. Vance. Just wondering, has, has anybody taken a look at, at what happened last week in, in that race? No, we're very disappointed in the outcome of the uh, senatorial election. It's uh, We did put a lot of effort and a lot of heart and soul into trying to get Tim Ryan elected uh, to the Senate. And it's just amazing that uh, what the outcome was. Uh, and, you know, we've got some issues we have to deal with in Ohio. If you look across the state, what the uh, the vote was on statewide races, it's it's you know, it's tends we need to do some work here. It's uh, Ohio is a very complicated state. If you really look at the really do a deep dive in analysis, you know, we were a success. We actually picked up a Congress seat. We Greg Lansman beat Steve Shabbat in, in District One. We got Amelia Sykes won her seat. Uh, we, we were able to retain Marcy Captor, Joyce Beatty, and Chantel Brown. So now we have five people in a congressional seat where we had four Democrats before. These are all strong labor-supported candidates. So we did well in, in those races, but overall in the state, we, we got crushed. And I think it's we got to go back to the drawing board. Ohio is a very complicated state, and I think we need to start working an 88-county strategy and start speaking to our members and educating our members on what, you know, what actually the effects politics does have on their daily lives. And that message has got to get across. Yeah, that was a surprise in Cincinnati because that's uh, that's a pretty conservative area there, and that was a city councilman that uh, beat Chabot. Marcy Captor, though, now here's a woman, and she's been on the show a number of times. Here's a woman that came in that was part of, uh, I believe, in '82, and that was in response, a Democratic response to Ronald Reagan being elected two years before, and she's been as solid as they come when it comes to labor. But she had quite a challenge, and wasn't that because of the way they carved up that district? Well, they definitely uh, gerrymandered that district and took her all out of all the parts of the western part of Cuyahoga County. She had all Lorraine, moved her farther west to a very, very Republican-leaning area, Williams County, right on the the border of Indiana and that area there. Plus, still she still kept a little bit of Toledo. So it was a very challenging race for Marcine. Uh, we were very concerned about the outcome of that, and we did pour some resources in there and try to make sure she uh, retained our state. And she did very well in the election, which we're very, very glad and uh, congratulated Marcy. And hopefully she can continue to do her great work for us in the House. So my next question here, you know, we got a presidential election in uh, in less than two years now. Do we start planning for that? And and obviously the midterms, well, they spoke to us. I mean, first of all, number one, let's be honest, there was no red wave. It was a red red ripple. And I'm talking not I'm not I'm talking outside Ohio here. I'm sure you've been looking at national politics. But uh, that being said, it, the Republicans did recapture the House, and um, but they're going to hold on to the Senate. So I'm just wondering, you hearing anything about the? about the game plan for the next two years, Pat? Well, Flash, it was, you know, I mean, the red wave that they said was coming never never appeared. Uh, Democrats did very well. We didn't do that well in Ohio, and we need to start working on what we can do in Ohio. It's, you know, we're very fortunate that we were able to hold on to the Senate. Uh, 
with late with pro labor uh, senators in there. We were hoping that Tim Ryan would join them, but that didn't happen. So we're a little bit disappointed there. But uh, you know, we're, we're very concerned about Ohio and the direction Ohio is going. And I think we need to start from the ground up. We need to start developing our, our democratic parties and our labor movement and each of the counties individually and start working on the local level and build up and try to develop some type of infrastructure that can support candidates that support working people. Pat, if, uh, if you don't mind, I want to go back to the redistricting because I'm, I'm just wondering now that they picked up uh, an extra seat in the house in the state of Ohio, if that's going to complicate things with this uh, commission, because uh, I mean, it's still out of whack. Let, let's be honest here. And, Throw in the Ohio Supreme Court, where I know Jennifer Bruner, which labor supported, didn't make it as chief justice, and we're losing that swing vote with Maureen O'Connor. That's got to be a that's got to be a major concern going forward here. Well, any uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, redistricting is still a problem. We still have the you know Ohio Senate and the Ohio House, and you know that's been gerrymandered and as a super Republican majority and. So, I mean, redistricting is still an issue that we have to we have to work on and and get resolved because we need fair districts where we can have competitive races and and our people's voices can be heard. And I think that's a real problem that what we have is in politics and in in, in our office holders too is that everybody's so polarized because all you have to do is play to your constituency. So if you're in a gerrymandered district that's you know very conservative and solid Republican. You just say no to anything that's trying that's progressive ideas that Democrats come out with just to maintain your seat. And the same is with Democrats. We have some Democrats that are progressive and don't want to compromise and don't want to come out and, and be halfway. And because they're in these seats that are heavily gerrymandered, even in their way, they're going to, you know, you stick to those policies. And we don't have any kind of compromise, any kind of uh, incentive for people to to work together, to come to the middle, to reach compromise or reach agreements that help working people. And I right. think that's what we have to start addressing. That's that's the big issue that we have to deal with. Yeah, I, I'm afraid, especially with the House going to the Republicans, there's going to be legislation that's going to be anti-labor that's going to come out of the House, and then it'll be shot down in the Senate. I mean, that's exactly what is, what's going to happen, which means, to your point, nothing's going to get done. So right. we'll, yeah, that, we'll see. Yeah, that's... You know, that's the, the real problem here is that, you know, we've got a stalemate again, made possibly in Washington, that's going to trickle down and affect everything. And that's that's not good for the American people. That's not good for, for going forward and supporting people. And we think that, you know, we've got to get out of this polarization and this inability to work together to find compromise and do, to, to craft legislation that helps the American people. So I'm with you on that, brother. All right, Pat Gallagher, North Coast Labor Federation, United Steelworkers. You uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you in a month. Okay, brother? Thanks, Flash. All right, that's it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, I'm going to check in with the American Legion and the Alliance for Retired Americans. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.